Lord, a couple of things we want to lift up this morning before we climb into our time in the Word. First, I want to pray for a local official, pray for our city secretary, Deborah Newell. I want to pray for her worship, that if she doesn't know you, that she will come to know you, that it, if she does know you, that she will connect her worship and enjoyment of you to her role as city secretary. Pray that we would, um, this morning we pray that she would enjoy you as she goes about her job as one of our local officials, as we pray for the rest of our officials. Um, also, this, Lord, this morning I want to pray for Brad Strand, another pastor of another church here in town, Harvest Bible Church. I want to pray for Brad in his, first of all, in his role as worshiper, that he is uh, amazed and uh, awed by you and your work and that he is spending time in your word and that it's fueling him and fitting him first to be a worshiper, second to be a husband, third to be a father, and fourth to pastor a church. Lord, we pray that, that those priorities are kept in check, that his wife and family see his best and his first, and that uh, that, that spills over onto a people. Lord, we pray for this church harvest um, Bible church. We pray for their worship and their walk. We pray that they are enjoying Christ, that they are feasting on your son, and that they are walking with you. I pray that this, um, the journey that they take, as well as the journey that we take in 2013, will be guided by the Holy Spirit, that it will be a journey through the word, that you would guard his pulpit as well as you would guard this pulpit from quippy sayings, um, cheesy stories, um, light teachings that scratch itches and tickle ears, but that this pulpit as well as his, as well as the other Christian pulpits in this community would be exposing the greatness of our God and what you've done for us in Christ, period. Pray that you would guard this church as you would guard Harvest Bible Church from making much of man, but that together we would make much of our Lord. I pray that in these next few minutes that, you, that we would do that. I confess in front of your people this morning that this truth is sweet and it is um, well beyond my ability to communicate. And I ask for the work of the Holy Spirit. I pray for a clarity that's beyond me and above me I pray for an attentiveness that's spirit-fueled. And I pray that we will set this year in motion with this Sunday and these following seven Sundays in a way that would bring glory to you. We love you, Lord. We look forward to our time together in the Word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> if you would turn in your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 6. 2 Chronicles chapter 6. As you're turning there, I'm going to give you sort of an introduction to where we're going, not only today, but for the next seven Sundays. The next seven Sundays. We were talking about doing the next six Sundays, but I think we have a seventh in there. And then we'll be rolling right back into Hebrews. But we are starting this morning in terms of introductory uh, context with Hebrews. I'm going to explain to you why we're going to 2 Chronicles as you're turning there. Hebrews chapter 3 says this. It'll be a familiar passage for us. We spent weeks, in fact, months in this passage. 
Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. We had a series of sermons that we called Considering Jesus Series. The apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. As we climbed into this series of sermons through Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we realized there's this repeated word, house, seven times in this passage. I think it's seven, pretty sure. Seven times. This passage is much as about exposing who Christ is. It's about God's house. Listen to what he says. Moses was faithful in all God's house, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And listen to this statement. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. One of the things that we've been considering through Advent and also in the unpacking of this scripture is we realize that God uses shadows and types to prepare God's people for what's coming later. Little tastes of something that would later be the full meal. We didn't touch on this at all. I think we may at some point in the past few years have touched on it on a Wednesday night. But Eden is a shadow of something that would come later, and that would be the tabernacle. Lots of the imagery of Eden is present in the furniture of the tabernacle. And then the shadow of the tabernacle shows up firmly, or more firmly, in the temple, the more physical or the more um, static structure of the temple. And then as we considered these last few weeks before Advent, the temple is shadow, the temple being God's house, is shadow of the church. We are his house. What this does for us is it really makes sort of a dynamic relationship with these old writings, these ancient writings, where we can go to them and we can read them with a new set of eyes that have now been conditioned by Hebrews chapter 3. So we go back to a passage like 2 Chronicles chapter 6, where we're going this morning, and we read it with a whole new set of eyes, a set of eyes that have been conditioned by ears that have been equipped to see that we ultimately are the fulfillment of all these shadows, Eden, tabernacle, temple, church, that we are the meal. We are the substance, and those are the shadows. Now, in their day, as they're experiencing them, they're not shadow. To them, they're substance. But for us, as we look back at those things, Eden, tabernacle, temple, we see those were little things that were going to prepare God's people, and they open our eyes to the really what's taking place in the church, really what it is. It's a new Eden. It's a new dwelling place for, God's, for God as in his people. We're able to read these now, these old scripture, go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 6, passages like that, and see that, oh, that was a shadow of what we are now. And we read it with a whole new set of eyes. So this morning, that's what we're going to do. We're going to study 2 Chronicles chapter 6 and 7, especially over the next seven weeks, kicking off our year as the house of God, as the temple of God, as God's Eden 
the church. Okay. Now let me give you some background, some context. I wanna, what I want to do in these next few minutes is sort of fly over this passage since we're going to be living here for the next few weeks. I want to fly over this passage, give you a bird's eye view of what's taking place here, the context. Time-wise, we're talking about about 1,000 years before Christ, about 500 years after Moses, shortly after David, Solomon is David's son. So that's context-wise where we are, are chronological. Chronologically, that's where we are about 1,000 years before Christ. More context. Solomon has prayed a prayer asking for wisdom. You may be familiar with that prayer, a good prayer. I'm just going to read some excerpts leading up to chapter 6. In that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, ask what I, or ask what I shall give you. And then in verse 10, give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people for who can govern this people of yours, which is so great. Solomon asks for wisdom. It's such a good prayer that God, in fact, gives him that wisdom and then he gives him riches on top of that. So then Solomon, a nice transition that God is gonna give him wisdom. The next thing that Solomon does, you could preach a whole sermon from just how this, unflow, or how this flows and unfolds is that Solomon goes about building God's house. That's what wise people do. They're involved in building God's house. Beauty. Chapter 2, he goes about building the house. He starts with making connections with a guy like the king of Tyre named Hiram. Verse 4 says of chapter 2, Behold, I'm about to build a house for the name of the Lord my God and dedicated to him for the burning of incense of sweet spices before him and for the regular arrangement of the showbread for burnt offerings morning and evening on the Sabbaths, on the new moons, and the appointed feasts of the Lord our God as ordained forever for Israel. The house that I am to build will be great for our God is greater than all gods. And in verse 6, he says, a, 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 he says something he's going to say later here that we'll see this morning. But who is able to build him a house since heaven, even highest heaven, cannot contain him? This guy, Solomon, is fueled by awe from the outset. I'm going to build him a pretty amazing house, but it's pretty amazing that he's even going to show up because he's that awesome. Why in the world would he even stoop? So now Solomon says, send me a man skilled to work in gold, silver, bronze, and iron, and in purple, crimson, and blue fabrics, trained also in engraving. He's asking Hiram for some help. A guy later shows up named Huram Abi. He's trained to work in gold, silver, bronze, iron, stone, wood, and purple, blue, and crimson fabrics, and fine linen, and do all sorts of engraving and execute any design that may be assigned to him. Solomon's got the guy that's going to oversee the work, a guy named Huram Abi, who's half Jewish. And then in verse 17 of chapter 2, Solomon counted all the resident aliens who were in the land of Israel after the census of them that David his father had taken, and there were found 153,600. 70,000 of them he assigned to bear burdens, 80,000 to quarry in the hill country, and 3,600 as overseers to make the people work. Solomon's getting the goods together to build this amazing house. For God. Then in chapter 3, verse 1, Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Chapter 3 goes into the measurements of the holy place, of the most holy place, of the temple itself, of the courtyard. And then in chapter 4, it goes into the furnishings of the altar, the basins, the lampstands, the 400 pomegranates, the golden altar, the tables for the bread of the presence. Lamps of pure gold, the flowers, the lamps, the tongs, the purest gold, the snuffers, basins, dishes for incense, fire pans, pure gold, and the sockets of the temple. 
Then in chapter five, thus all the work that Solomon did for the house of the Lord was finished. He gets all the goods together. He gets all the hired help together. He gets all the furnishings together. And then the last thing that's to be brought into the temple is going to be the Ark of the Covenant. And that's what chapter five is about. Chapter five, it says the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, Jeduthun, their sons and kinsmen, arrayed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres, stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Sound familiar? The house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. The big day when they moved the ark into the temple. Then in chapter 6 is where we pick up. We haven't reached the high point of the event yet. It takes place in chapter 6. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. This is a reference to God speaking on top of Sinai. There's a theme in the Sinai, in the Exodus context, where the law is given at Sinai, that God is showing up and speaking in thick darkness. That's going to be important later. God has said he will dwell in thick darkness, but I, God, have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell forever. There's a contrast there, a beautiful contrast between God dwelling in thick darkness and the law and what he's giving us a taste of right here where he's building a temple where things are going to be different and better than thick darkness and law. It's going to be a taste of things to come, which we are walking and living in right now. This temple, I'm going to build you an exalted place. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father. God follows through on what he says he's going to do, saying, since the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. And I chose no man as prince over my people Israel, but I have chosen Jerusalem. Jerusalem means city of peace. Great connection to our Prince of Peace messages recently. But I have chosen the city of peace that my name may be there. And I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, it's not you who shall build the house, but your son, hint, hint, wink, wink, who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. A son will build the house. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made, for I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and I've built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, and there I have set the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with the people of Israel. Now here's the high point of these chapters. 
Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. And Solomon had made a bronze platform five cubits long, five cubits wide, three cubits high, and had set it in the court, and he stood on it. And then he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth, and with your hand you have fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep your servant David, my father, what you promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk in my laws, you've walked before me. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you've spoken to your servant David. And here's where we're going to be camping out this morning, the next few verses, this next paragraph. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Just see Solomon kneeling in all his glory and splendor, arms raised on a bronze platform in the middle of a a temple freshly built. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Marvel, awe, wonder. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet, have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house, the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen from heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear... Forgive. This morning, we're going to camp out in that paragraph, verses 18 through 21. For the sake of context, I'm going to just tell you, Solomon goes on to pray, praying for one who comes to the temple, making an oath. He prays that he would be, if he's righteous, vindicated, that if he's guilty, he would be judged. Then he prays for those who come to the temple who are defeated. Then he prays for those who come to the temple or pray toward the temple who are going through famine or pestilence or drought. Then he prays for the foreigner who doesn't know Yahweh or his people who comes to the temple. Then he prays for the warriors who go into battle. And lastly, he prays for those who are truly repentant that they will find forgiveness when they pray toward Yahweh in his temple. And then this chapter ends, Solomon's hands raised, kneeling. And now arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Go move in, God. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation. Let your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. 
It's an awesome chapter when you really just climb into it and you think about what's taking place here. But verses 18 through 21 is where we're going to be camped out this morning. In these next few weeks, we're going to unpack the rest of this, and it will be a great way to set our year in motion. This first paragraph, though, there's some things that are requested here in verse 18 through 21. First of all, Solomon marvels that God would dwell with man on earth. Why would he even stoop to move in? It's a fancy temple. It's amazing with the furnishings, the bronze, the gold, the purple, and fine linen. But it's not good enough for Yahweh. Why would he even bother to move in? Why would he stoop? This thing, this temple that he's marveling that God would even move into is to be the point of contact between God and his people. It is to replace what the tabernacle was as they moved through the wilderness. And it's to ultimately replace this dark, thick darkness on the top of Mount Sinai. It's going to have a different character altogether. And it's going to be a taste of things to come, which we live in right now. A little foretaste of where we are right now. Solomon asks some specific things in the rest of this paragraph, some words that he uses that can give us the flavor for what he's really begging for in this first paragraph of his prayer. Verse 19, Solomon asks God to have regard for the cry and the prayer to him and to his temple. Have regard for our prayers, our cries, and our prayers. And in verse 20, he asks God to be attentive. The language that he uses is, God, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house. And then also in verse 20, he asks God to listen to his prayer offered toward this place. Now then we're talking about a fixed geography. The difference between then and now is that this dwelling place for God is not a fixed geography. 2401 Jack Finney Boulevard is the address for this building, but it's not the address for this church. This church is wherever we gather. So this is a static setting right here, but things are different now in that we're not grounded as this temple was. And that's why he's saying praying toward this place, but he's asking God, have regard. God, be attentive. God, listen to our prayer toward this place. And then in verse 21, he asks God to listen to the pleas of Israel. And he appeals to God, reminding God that they're your people. And then lastly, in verse 21, he says, And when you hear, forgive. When you hear, forgive. We're going to end this series with dealing with the forgiveness. It's a great place for us to end it a few weeks from now. This morning, we're just dealing with the, the hearing, the listening the having regard, what he's asking for here. And right off the bat, we can read this passage through the lens of Hebrews chapter 3 where we camped out before Advent. We can rewrite almost this passage. We're not going to say it's canonical and stick it in the Word, but we can rewrite it now being educated and equipped from Hebrews chapter 3. Here's a little rewrite that I did last night. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less the church that you built? Marvel and awe that he would dwell with man at all. 
Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open day and night toward the church, the people who bear your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers. Instead of praying toward a place, we pray now in Jesus' name. It's the same thing. It's our version of them praying toward a place. We pray now in the name of his son. And listen to the pleas of your servant and to your people, the new Israel, the church. When they pray in Jesus' name and listen from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. We can just enjoy, first of all, a rewrite, reading this passage, writing this passage dynamically, equipped and informed from Hebrews chapter 3, realizing that we are the fulfillment of Eden, tabernacle, temple, church. That's us. We're the place where he dwells now. We're the contact point for the earth now. The temple was destroyed on purpose, specifically so that we would be the place where God dwells now. We can read this and write this in a way that is informed by Hebrews chapter 3. But I want to go back to what Solomon asks and what God says, and then I want us to go to what God can show us now as the church where we are. I hinted at that in this rewrite. But let's go back to the story of what Solomon had asked for. God, have regard for me. God, be attentive to me and our people and your people. God, listen to our prayers, our cries. God, listen to our pleas, and when you hear, forgive. Let's see what God says. Let's see how he responds in chapter 7 of 2 Chronicles, the very beginning. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. Now, it turns out that Solomon is on a different structure than the altar, At first, as I was reading this weeks ago, I was thinking that Solomon was actually kneeling on the altar. It turns out that Solomon has has, uh, erected a structure to pray from, a platform that's separate from the altar, but it's not far from the altar. So I can't imagine that when this fire came down from heaven that Solomon wasn't singed a little bit. He prays this prayer. He ends it with the passage I just read at the end of chapter 6, and then fire comes down from heaven and consumes a burnt offering and sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not even enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the, the Lord's house. When all the people of the Lord saw, the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures. Forever. This is part one of God's answer. This is the visual aid of the answer. Solomon asks these things specifically that God would have regard, that God would be attentive to them, that God would listen to them, that he would listen to their pleas, and that when he hears that he would forgive, and then fire shoots down from heaven and consumes everything on the altar, Solomon doesn't have any eyebrows anymore singed. That's part one of the answer. And then moments later, they begin what what ends up being seven days of celebration where they sacrifice 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. It's quite a celebration. 
And then in verse 11, I want you to look at this, chapter 7. This is 13 years later. It's the next verse in our Bible, but it's 13 years later. See, there's two different accounts of this event where the, tab- where the temple is, is dedicated. It's 1 Kings chapter 8 and 2 Chronicles chapter 6 and 7. 1 Kings chapter 8 gives us a timeline that this verse, although at verse 11 is just next, it looks like it's the next thing that happens. 1 Kings tells us this was 13 years later. This unfolds. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord in the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his house he successfully accomplished 13 years later. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Think about what you're thinking about 13 years from now or what you were thinking about 13 years ago. I don't imagine that Solomon didn't need a reminder, well, what are you even talking about, God? And then he goes, oh, yeah, I remember 13 years ago, I prayed some specific prayers, and then God specifically deals with those details, showing that God heard every word. It took 13 years for an answer. He got the visual aid immediately. But 13 years later, God says this, When I shut up the heavens and there's drought so that there's no rain, or when there's pestilence and I command the locusts to devour the land, or I send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open as you requested and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. I need glasses. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. Now let me just deal with the fact that it's 13 years later first. This is not even the the substance of the sermon, but it is such a teachable and important point that here it is 13 years later that Solomon is getting an answer to his prayer, not on his time and not on his terms, but on God's time and God's terms. 13 years later. And it's a pretty dramatic prayer. He even built a scaffold to do it from, a freshly built temple. Everybody's there. He's raising his hands. He's kneeling, right? He should have gotten an answer right then. He got the visual aid then. But the answer comes 13 years later. Those of you that have been praying something for years, for decades maybe, take comfort in knowing that God hears every single prayer, every single detail, and he will answer it on his terms in his time. I read yesterday morning that Adam fathered Seth at the age of 130. Now, he lived a long time, 800-something years. But 130. I don't know how old he was when he fathered Cain and Abel. But I'm wondering, if he's a young man, he and Eve, you know, they're evicted from the garden. Likely they're young and they have Cain and Abel. And then Cain kills Abel. And then Cain is... um, ends up wandering the earth. 
How long did Adam and Eve have to wait for Seth? How long did they have to wait before Seth, Seth showed up? Thinking, man, we can get something from Amazon Prime two days later. Anything. We can get something on the internet tomorrow, or likely we can get it in the store today. But when it comes to God's timing, we have to be dependent on him and trust him in his timing. Thirteen years later, God answers Solomon. And he answers in so much detail that he clearly shows that he listened to every single word. Thank you. Man, you good call. I may not be able to see y'all, but I can see this now. All right. That 13 years later thing's important. Now, in regards to what he says 13 years later, Solomon asked a few things of him. He asked that he would have regard, that he would be attentive, that he would listen to his prayer, that he would listen to the pleas, and that when he hears them, that he would forgive them. And God says 13 years later, he says, you know what? I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin. He says, now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer. You only ask for my eyes, Solomon, but I'm going to give you my ears also. And then he goes on to say, for now I've chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there, be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there forever. You need to know that he's not talking about that physical structure right there because that physical structure was destroyed by the Assyrians. Herod rebuilt it later, and then that one was destroyed in 70 AD. You got to know that if God has made a promise that he's going to be in this dwelling place forever, that now it's speaking figurative and he's speaking about the church. We are the fulfillment of this promise. We are the eternal dwelling place for God. The church is the continuation of this promise. Solomon asked to be heard, that God would be attentive, that God would hear their cry and their prayer, that they would listen. He would listen to their prayers and their pleas, and that when God hears them, that he would forgive. And the book of Psalms proves that God's people are heard in every situation. If you read the book of Psalms, you find people in every single place. You find them celebrating. You find them at times saying, God, where in the world are you? You find them at times in a place of despair. You find them in places of darkness. You find them in places of victory. You find them in places of defeat. You even find them in places of exile. And in every place, God has heard those prayers. Every single place. So if his hearing is this sure when priests and sacrifices and a temple and fixed geography and special rooms with limited access are involved, how sure is it for us now that we have full access How sure is it now that he will hear our prayers? Turn to Matthew chapter 6. I get up early on Sunday mornings and try and sort of get the finishing thoughts together for a sermon. And usually it's pretty contained by that point. But this morning something... Um, Something showed up that surprised me. I plan to go to Matthew chapter 6, where the disciples asked Jesus how to pray. This is in the other account that they actually ask him. And Matthew version doesn't show their request. 
But in Matthew chapter six, God, Jesus responds and says, you begin the prayer, you're familiar with the prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I thought about this teaching on prayer in light of what Solomon requested of God some thousand years earlier. I thought about this teaching on prayer and I thought, man, that's a beautiful, beautiful relationship between father and child. And then I realized the whole notion of fatherhood is really underdeveloped in the Old Testament. It's hardly even present. I did a search on my computer. I have this program where I can just search the Bible in all these different languages and all these different tools. And I searched the Bible cover to cover and found 900-something references to father. Most of them have a lowercase f because they're speaking about a dad. But some of them have an uppercase f because they're speaking about our father. I found so few references in the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 65, Psalm number 89. Isaiah 63, Isaiah 64, Jeremiah 3, Malachi 2. That's it. I found reference after reference to God being Elohim, Adonai, Yahweh. But this amazing absence and void in our entire Old Testaments are at least a very light handling of God as Father. And in those references, if you're paying attention to the books I mentioned, they're prophetic or they're poetic. Psalm is poetic. We can use, we have some liberties. We can use some names and some terms and be kind of creative. And then prophecy, you know, is leaning forward. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Malachi, leaning forward to a future relationship. And then here, Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray and he says, start your prayers out with our Father. You don't have to start them out with Elohim. Adonai, Yahweh, start them out with our Father because you're now through what I'm about to do, his child. You're now his children. He heard his people as Adonai, as Elohim, as Yahweh. He heard them. He just said it, chapter 7 of 2 Chronicles, chapter 7. You're asking for these things, although you're getting an answer 13 years later. I'm going to hear from you, and I'm going to forgive you. You're going to get my ear. You're going to get my eye. I'm even going to give you my heart. But now in Christ, we have so much more. This father teaching blew my mind this morning. It's not just this one little passage either. Listen to this. Just listen to this machine gun, shotgun, I don't know, this, this repetitive use of it. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is, who is in heaven. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing so that you giving may be in secret and your father who sees you in secret may reward you. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them for your father knows that you need them before you ask them. Okay, Jesus, how do we pray? Pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It goes on throughout this book over and over and over and over again from the New Testament onward. 
And it goes through the epistles. Listen to this. Just listen. It blows my mind that I've never really connected to this. Romans chapter 1. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You can just go book by book. Second Corinthians. It's also in First Corinthians. I just I have really crummy stickies here. Grace to you and peace from our Lord and from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter one. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father. First Thessalonians, to the church of Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Writing to Timothy, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ our Lord Jesus. I mean, it's, it's throughout this book now, and it's void in our Old Testaments almost. Because things are different in Jesus. Things have been, in some ways, crucified. That temple and all that to do has been crucified. I'm speaking figuratively, but I'm also speaking realistically. It has been cross-eyed, cross-ified. Things are different now this side of the cross. Solomon begged for something, and he got it in spades. And what Solomon begged for that he got in spades, we now have those spades times exponential better because he's our father. Because what Solomon was asking, he was asking of Elohim. He's asking of Adonai. He's asking of Yahweh. When we come before God, we ask him as our father. Romans chapter 8, Paul says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Man, what Solomon begged for, he got. He got a heavy dose of it. But it is a thin sliver of what we have because of what Christ has done. It is a thin sliver. Paul is begging the church. He introduces every letter referring to him as father. James does it too. James refers to him as a father of lights. It's not just a Paul thing. It's a New Testament thing. It's a crossified thing. It's a crucified thing. Thing. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, church, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Jesus teaches the disciples and he teaches us to pray to our Father like we are his children. So when Solomon asks Elohim and Adonai and Yahweh for an eye, we know that we've got so much more in Christ. We've got what any of you should be able to expect of your father. Access. Attentiveness. An ear. Love. Grace. If this doesn't convict you, dads, if it doesn't put on you and grip you with the importance of being approachable and available and attentive and responsive because we reflect the character of the Heavenly Father to our children. I don't know what else will. We've got an eye, an ear, 
heart and everything that a father has to offer his child because of what Christ did. And we can enter the throne room boldly. There's no Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, big, big iron door. There's no big iron key and big iron door that takes about five people to open to get access to him. There's no appointment necessary. There's no guards at the door because he's our father. In Christ, in fact, in regards to access, we are presently in the throne room with our Father. There's no thick darkness anymore. There's no book schedules because He's our Father. He's our Father. In light of all that we have in Christ, in light of what Solomon asks for and what Solomon commissioned that existed for in his version or Herod's version for a little over a thousand years, in light of that thing being crucified, may we be a people who cry out to him, taking advantage of our full and ample access. May we in 2013 be a people who cry out to him, who plead with him, who pray to him, who enjoy and take advantage of this full access we have before the throne of grace as his children. May our gatherings be seasoned with prayer. Seasoned. May we together trust our father like a child trusts his own father. And may we be in 2013 fathers who reflect the character of our father. Let's pray together. God, as we consider this morning what Solomon asked for, all the work that went into building this temple, all the hired help, all the ingredients and materials that are gathered, all the events that led up to it, the wisdom involved in building it, Lord, as we look at those things that Solomon asked for, together this morning we realize that we have exponentially in Christ. What you gave Solomon and his people, which was an ear and was an eye and was a heart, you have given us so much more as our Father. Lord, I pray one of the results of this series of sermons that we have together in these first few weeks of this year will be that the character of our God comes into focus and that we see you truly as a father. And that we learn to run to you as a child would.
that we learn to call out to you with prayer and plea. That whether we're in feast or famine or pestilence or plenty, that we will learn to enjoy you as Abba Father. And that together that we would enjoy that you do in fact hear our prayers and not hearing them 13 years later, hearing them now and in great detail. Lord, I pray that we as a church would be, that our gatherings would be seasoned with prayer, that we would never be in a rush to do a little introductory prayer and then spend time preaching or singing, but that we would truly saturate our time taking advantage of this ample access that we have. Lord, together we are thankful this morning that we have this access because of what Christ did. We count that our singular um, entry. We enjoy that these truths have been crucified and that we're in your presence right now. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. And John chapter 6 <clears throat> we have another contact point here we here we come to an event that takes place here each sunday and it's a contact point it is it's regard for you it's an attentive father and it is access but i want you to listen <clears throat> to what jesus says and see what the father does in him and see the access see the contact point and see how he couches this in John chapter 6 and then at the same time I want it this also defines that access for us and we need to define this access a little bit in this moment as we take this supper but Jesus said to them I am the bread of life whoever comes to me or literally comes into me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst but I said to you, I said to you that you have seen me and yet you don't believe. All that the Father gives me will come into me. And whoever comes, to, comes into me, I will never cast out, ever. Here, here's the coolest statement. For I have come down from heaven. God came. The Father sent I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, the Father. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I will lose nothing that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And I don't know where you are today. Whether or not your sin is conspicuous. In other words, people know it. You've experienced shame. People know what your sin is right now. Or whether your sin is inconspicuous. Here's the access. Here's the remedy. Here's the resolution right here in Jesus. 
And for some of us, we think that if we hide our sin and we keep it inconspicuous, that somehow that's keeping us okay, run in repentance to a father that says, come, come to Jesus. If your sin is widely known, run right here and enjoy, enjoy access. But come in repentance. If you are uh, uh, not a member of Cross Point and you are uh, living in something that you are not confessing and you are not in repentance or you're crossways with other people, we ask that you not take this supper. But if you are enjoying the message today, you're enjoying that a father says, come in Jesus, come through him, come into him, and you are repentant, then enjoy the good gift of the father this morning in Jesus. Let's pray and then we'll take the supper. Father, you are good and your name is above all names as father. And we are so humbled and a tad fearful when we take this supper. I pray that you would help us to give up trying to hide who we are and that we would enjoy a Father with no steel door and no key and that we would enjoy the bread of life through Jesus sent from a good father in this supper. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.
the bread of life, come down from heaven, sent with regard and attentiveness from a good father, fulfillment, salvation, take and eat, and his blood that we will proclaim until he comes again, take and drink. Father, as we move into a time of giving our offering, a tithe and offering, I don't know, I just pray that in light of your regard that we would, our giving would just be pretty ridiculous, that we would just overflow with generosity and attentiveness to your work. And I pray that we would give not trying to earn a thing and to be caught in that trap, but that we would enjoy Jesus when we give. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Some of these things that we talked about this morning from this passage will be sorted. If you're kind of like, man, I'm not sure I really have a handle on that passage. I told Scott this morning, I'm like, man, I don't think I can preach this thing this morning. It's just, it's complicated climbing into a context and covering a volume of scripture in a way where you don't just get lost in it and where you don't feel like you're just being read to. So what I'm asking of you these, this week and the next few weeks is read this passage. We're going to be living in it for the next few weeks as we kind of kick off the year. Second, uh, Second Chronicles, I keep wanting to say Corinthians. Uh, Second Chronicles, you could begin in chapter 1 through chapter 7. Just saturate yourself in that, and that will take the burden off the, the preacher that feels like, man, they don't have any recent exposure to it. You can know, oh, these families have been eating this, so it'll be familiar to you. And um, I, I tell you, I was thinking, one of the things that, that um, I had to race off to my office just now to find a passage that I read earlier this week that I thought would be a nice way to end this morning. The reason I get emotional, um, I get emotional just thinking about God sometimes, like a girl or something, but <laughs> embarrassed. Sometimes I want to crawl home, but um, this morning I got emotional talking about a dad because my my dad has given me long drinks of what God looks like. He is wrought with frailty. But he gave me long drinks of what God looks like. And that man, I pine for that in you as fathers and grandfathers. I pine for that in you as mothers. Because you can give God a, you can give your children a glimpse of what God looks like too as a, a a hen cares for her chicks, sort of, you know, a eagle's wings, sort of caring for your child. So that just gripped me this morning because I'm, like Brad said, sort of fearful. Like, uh, me and my kids are going to get a picture of what God looks like and how I move. Whoa, man, it's going to be a feeble look. But hopefully, my kids and your kids will be like, I wasn't, I'll remember those long drinks. And, um, Two, this, this will encourage you. This, this is the passage I raced off to my office to get. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. Yet I will not forget you. Some of you in here might be thinking, man, I wish I had a dad to give me long drinks. My dad wasn't there. Or my dad isn't there. Or I wish that I'd been that kind of dad. You may be sitting here with regret. Or you might be thinking, I'm married to a man that's not giving my child long drinks. You can be encouraged. 
and know that a woman could forget her nursing child. It seems unimaginable, but she could fail her nursing child. A father could give his son a scorpion when he asked for a piece of bread. It could happen. These may forget, yet I will not forget you. What a great God we have. What a great God we have. Y'all stand and I'll dismiss you. We are resuming our normal Wednesday night schedule this Wednesday. If you in the past have, have purposed to be part of a midweek study, um, you thought, man, I really haven't done that. January is a good time to kick something like that off. It has a starting point and an ending point, and we'll go till the end of the school semester. And uh, if there's a holiday or something like that, we'll take a holiday off. But if you want to climb in, we're, what we're doing is we're continuing, or we're actually starting a survey of the Old Testament. We have eaten, in some ways, Genesis and Exodus, and we're starting picking up in Leviticus. And over the course of the next four years, we'll make it through the entire Bible, do a survey of our Bible. So it's going to be a pretty cool time together. We're going to spend maybe a Wednesday night or two in a book in an entire book. You, you wonder if it's possible for Crosspoint to do such a thing? I think we can. We're really going to try. So we'll see. I see some people going, oh, I don't know about that. It's going to be cool. So if you want to get to know your Bible, the big sweep of it, and you feel like sometimes you open it and you really don't have a clue of where it is context, you know, contextually, this would be a great journey together for children, youth, and adults. We're all going to be doing the same thing. So Great meal to be eating together. Even if you may not be in the same room eating it, eating it together, you can still talk about it because we're all going to be eating the same meal. So that's at 6 o'clock this Wednesday night. Let me pray. God, we love you. We're thankful, or we are thankful that you will not forget us, that you are a good Abba Father, and that we are in a new relationship with you because of what Christ has done. That, yes, you are Elohim and Adonai and Yahweh, but you are also Daddy, Father, we marvel at that. We enjoy that. And uh, together, as we kick off this year, we celebrate that. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.